From KUAR in Little Rock, I'm Phil Marriage, and this is Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. Now in our 17th year on the air and still the only program on radio today dedicated to the preservation of comparative generational thought, let me welcome you to the Crossroads of History. Our topic today is cardiovascular health, and February being Heart Health Month, my guests are all from UAMS, Dr. Jay Maida. Heart muscle gets stiff with age. It fails to relax. It's a pump that contracts and relaxes. And with aging, there is a trouble in relaxation part of the heart physiology. Dr. Jean McSweeney. 80% of heart disease is preventable. And Dr. James Marsh. In the future, a routine checkup will be a Skype visit plus a transmission of your biomonitors. We'll be right back to talk about cardiovascular health right after the news. Hi everyone, I'm Phil Marriage and this is Yesterday, Today and Tomorrow. Our topic today is cardiovascular health, this being Heart Health Month. The fact that heart disease is right at the top of the list for causes of death, we tend to think that it is likely reserved for all of us as we get older. Likely reserved are really the wrong words and really should be considered for everyone, young and old. For those of you listening who seem to be fine now, remember what my guests have to say now about cardiovascular health for each generation. I do have three guests with me here today in the studio, and normally when I introduce the guests, I try to stay to a minimum. But given the fact that I have three really professional people here, and I'm very honored to have them here, my introductions of them may be just a little longer than normal, but I do want to give you all the information I possibly can about them. Dr. Jay Maida is here. Dr. Maida received his MD degree in India and his Ph.D. in Sweden, and completed his postgraduate work in New York and Minnesota. He moved to Little Rock in 2000 as the first Stebbins Chair in Cardiology and Professor of Medicine and Physiology and Biophysics. He led the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine at UMS until 2007. Professor Mader serves or has served on the editorial board of several major cardiology, physiology, and pharmacology journals. He's published over 1,200 papers, abstracts, and book chapters. He's a member of many prestigious academic societies, and grateful patients here have established a Meta Chair in Cardiovascular Research at UAMS in his honor. Professor Meta has uh, lectured in over 30 countries. He's an honorary professor in the University of Rome and an adjunct professor in the Clinton School of Public Service here in Little Rock and serves as consultant to the University of Arkansas in nanotechnology and biomedical engineering. Dr. Meta, glad to have you here with me here today. Thank so. you. Dr. Jean McSweeney is a professor and associate dean for research here at UAMS. She belongs to many professional organizations and is a longstanding member and past president of the Southern Nursing Research Society. She has served on the National Institute of Health, National Institute of Nursing Research Advisory Council, and is the only researcher from Arkansas to ever be appointed to the National Institute of Health Council of Councils that advises the director of the National Institute of Health. Dr. McSweeney is a research pioneer in the field of women's cardiovascular disease and published the first study that described women's symptoms of heart disease. Findings from her studies about women's early warning and acute symptoms of heart disease across ethnic groups 
received national and international coverage from television and radio stations such as CNN and CBS Evening News. She was the lead author of a scientific statement from the American Heart Association on ischemic heart disease in women. Her research on women's systems of heart disease have also been featured in a variety of women's magazines and news journals such as Ladies Home Journal, Family Circle, Prevention, and U.S. News and World Report. A long introduction for you, Dr. McSweeney, but well-deserved and glad to have you here, too. Thank you so much. And then finally, Dr. James D. Marsh. He's the Nolan Professor and Chair of the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences here. He attended Harvard College in Cambridge, Massachusetts, then attended the Harvard Medical School. He received his internal medicine training at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. In July of 2004, Dr. Marsh moved here to University of Arkansas, where he began serving as the Nolan Professor and Chair of the Department of Internal Medicine. He has won numerous national research and education awards and is on the editorial board of several journals. Dr. Marsh has been an active investigator in molecular cardiology for more than 30 years and has helped lead numerous NIH-sponsored clinical trials in stroke prevention. Dr. Marsh is past president of the Association of Professors of Medicine, the group of the 145 internal medicine department chairs from the U.S. and Canada. He is a consultant to the NIH on the physician-scientist workforce and has a particular interest in clinical trials in stroke prevention. Dr. Marsh, glad to have you here, too. Thank you. I told you it was going to be a long introduction, but I think as we get into our discussion here, with the serious nature of heart disease, cardiovascular research, these professionals I have here can really give you some important information, I believe, about cardiovascular health. Let me begin with you, Dr. Maynard, as best as we can talk about the times when we didn't know much about cardiovascular mm -hmm. health. What was it like for people, say, maybe back in the 30s or even earlier than that? I know it's before your time, but what did people used to do or know about cardiovascular health? Thank you, Phil. Actually, heart disease as a major problem wasn't recognized in the 20s and 30s because other causes of death were more common, like infectious diseases. Anybody who got chest pain, they just uh, thought they didn't know what to do with it. But now, since the late 60s and early 70s, we've recognized that it is the biggest heart disease, the biggest killer in the United States. And it is rapidly becoming the number one cause of death worldwide as the incidence of infectious disease is going down. We call it non-infectious type of diseases. Early on in 60s, most of the heart disease was what we call rheumatic heart disease. Now, rheumatic heart disease has almost been eradicated in the developing world as the antibiotics came along. But now, the major type of heart disease that we have is called coronary artery disease, a narrowing in the arteries that supply blood to the heart. And the process of narrowing is called atherosclerosis, or hardening of the arteries. So in the last 30, 40 years, we've recognized that atherosclerosis and coronary artery disease are now the number one killers in the United States. The good news there is that heart attacks, which appear as a result of atherosclerosis in the coronary arteries, they kill a very, very large number of patients. The good news here is that we have seen over the last 30, 40 years a gradual and steady decline in death rate from heart attack. Almost it is cut down by 50%. But there is still room for improvement, and there's a lot of research going on in that field. Now, why did we see the decline in mortality from coronary artery disease? It's not actually known fully why, 
But there are certain things that I can talk about that has helped us understand. A lot of it began from the epidemiologic studies, which were initially conducted in Framingham in Massachusetts, but since then, several other places uh, in Australia, in uh, Hawaii, in Japan, many countries have conducted a similar type of epidemiologic studies. And we identified certain risk factors, individuals who, will, who are more likely to get coronary heart disease. And those risk factors that we learned in the late 1960s and 70s were age, presence of diabetes, smoking, increase in bad cholesterol, high blood pressure, and family history. And now we are learning in the last uh, 10 years more so that there are other risk factors as well, such as inactive lifestyle, stress, emotional stress. And uh, there has been much talk about controlling these risk factors over the last uh, several decades. The NIH came up with recommendations, American Heart Association came up with recommendations, and several other associations came up that there are certain modifiable risk factors like diabetes, smoking, bad lipids, and hypertension, which can be treated. And these are being treated much more aggressively than they used to be. Mm -hmm. But there are still, we cannot do anything about age, and we cannot do anything about the family history. You can choose your parents well next time around. And then we can also do something about stress and inactive lifestyle. So that's my major emphasis at this point. But in the last 30 years, we also have seen the evolution of major treatments for heart disease. Did, were doctors not aware of a lot of the things then that you are now, Dr. Mishwini? I would say that they were not for the most part. It's amazing when you stop and think how recent it's been that we've been doing EKGs. Most everybody's had an EKG at this point in time, over probably over 50. But before that, they really didn't have a way to really diagnose this unless they listened to the heart and maybe could pick up an arrhythmia. But just because you have an irregular heartbeat doesn't mean you're going to have a heart attack. So it was, it was difficult for them to diagnose. Uh -huh. And we didn't really have very good treatments early on, like Dr. Mehta was talking about. There is one thing I would like to go back with Dr. Mehta's comments and talk a little bit about how it's been different for women. And he talked about around the 1960s or so and how we've had a steady decline in death rates. That has been true for men, but that has not been true for women. Actually, if you would see a graph, as men's rates were coming down, women's rates were going up. So women were dying were more likely to die from a heart attack than men were. And it's only been in about the last oh, eight to ten years that we've begun to see women's rates begin to decline. And now they're starting to decline very rapidly. But women have had a very hard time getting diagnosed and because they have some different symptoms than men do. Mm -hmm. So it hasn't been equal across the sexes. And, and so I think that's a very important point that, that we need to discuss. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Marsh, can you kind of talk about what maybe young, younger people might be talking about in their terms of understanding heart uh, cardiovascular health? Sure. So <clears throat> just to set the stage a little bit, in my, my image of, and maybe younger people's image of the 1950s and 1960s when we were just becoming aware of heart disease in men, and it wasn't even on the radar screen for women. Mm -hmm. I would I would look at the people in Mad Men, the, the TV show. Yeah. So they had 
interesting lifestyles. They all smoked a lot and, <laughs> and uh, carried on a bit. Nobody would intentionally exercise. Just people didn't do it in those days. And the diet, of course, was the good American diet of couple pieces of bacon and fried eggs for breakfast and, uh, and, and steak for dinner and mashed potatoes. And in the 60s and, and 70s, um, one way to kind of assess the, the culture about, about diet, and, and now also, is take a snapshot of a college cafeteria. And in the 60s, what was served in the college cafeteria? And meat and potatoes? There was no such thing as a salad bar. <laughs> there was no such thing as vegetarian diets or gluten-free, any of that. Now we'll take a, take a snapshot in 2017 of a college cafeteria. And what we would view now as much healthier food alternatives are available. And the students demand it. That, that the food is there, the choices are there because the students insist on it. So I think that's a good measure that, in fact, a lot of the younger generation, but not all, are much more aware uh, are of, of foods and contributors to cardiovascular health. Now, it's, one has to be cautious about making gener, uh, generalizations about a whole generation. There's a whole spectrum of folks. But for people that, are, that are, have higher health literacy and are more better educated in general, there's certainly greater awareness of the lifestyles and factors that can, can contribute to heart disease. I'm Phil Marriage, and we're discussing cardiovascular health today with my guests, Dr. Jay Maida, Dr. Jean McSweeney, and Dr. James Marsh, all three from UAMS, and we'll be right back after this short message. If you're just joining us here on Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, this is National Health Heart Month, and we are talking about cardiovascular health for older, middle, and younger generations. My guests are Dr. Jay Maida. He was the Director of Cardiovascular Medicine at UMS for seven years until 2007. He's a well-known cardiologist and basic scientist in the field of renin-angiotensin system and oxidation lipids. That's a tough one for me to say. Uh, Dr. Jean McSweeney is a professor and associate dean of research at UMS. Dr. McSweeney is a research pioneer in the field of women's cardiovascular disease and published the first study that described women's symptoms of heart disease. And also Dr. James D. Marsh is the Nolan Professor and Chair of the Department of Internal Medicine here at UAMS. And Dr. Marsh has been an active investigator in molecular cardiology for more than 30 years and has helped lead numerous NIH-sponsored clinical trials in stroke and prevention. Dr. Maida, I want to come back to you with one of the words that you mentioned in your early discussion about risk factors. Can mm -hmm. you talk to me a little bit about what people think about risk factors uh, from over the course of time? Uh, has, have risk factors changed? Well, this is an important question. What risk factors really means, the word risk factor, is that if you have these conditions, you are more likely to develop heart disease, or as I mentioned earlier, hardening of the artery or atherosclerosis. And some of these are non-modifiable, like getting old, male sex, family history. But then there are others which are clearly modifiable, such as smoking, diabetes, how high your blood sugar is, and uh, hypertension, how high your blood pressure is. And then lately there has been a lot of emphasis on uh, cholesterol levels, bad cholesterol levels. And then I mentioned earlier stress, inactive lifestyle. These are, we consider, risk factors. 
You put them in a formula, and the formula, based on the studies that have been done, gives you the likelihood that you're going to have coronary disease or not, or heart attack or not. That's what we call risk factors. If I were to walk into your office, the way I look anyway, well... You look pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) I guess my question then is, can you guys, since you're involved with heart issues, can you tell pretty much just by looking at somebody if they have risk factors that are serious or maybe, like you say, I look pretty good? Would you know that I would have Uh, risk factors just by looking? I cannot. Some people say they can. I cannot. I just need to, I spend a lot of time with my patients and take a good history and then do some lab tests to assess whether they are at risk or not. Well, Dr. Just Mc... by looking, I don't think. Well, Dr. McSweeney, if I looked a little differently, so let's say I'm either 30, year, yeah, 30 years younger or maybe 20 years older and I walk into your office, do I look more like I have risk factors then? Well, I would say... If you just look at somebody for a risk factor, if we see someone who's very overweight, that that most definitely is a risk factor. And as we talk about generations and how risk factors have changed over time, the amount of obesity that we have in our country is absolutely astonishing. And I, I present risk factors a lot. In fact, I just did the other day at Pine Bluff and with a group. And obesity rates from the 1990 up until now, it's just, there's just no comparison. I actually have a map of the United States that I show. When it turns from a blue color to a red, it's the very worst. And I would say over half of the United States is now in red. And it started off in 1990 where there was not any red in the United States. Really? And so overall... And so I think obesity epidemic is really important to talk about, and that would be one thing if you looked at somebody. And we know that obesity makes someone more prone to develop diabetes and high blood pressure. And when you put those three together, that really makes someone at risk. But you can't look at somebody and know they have high blood pressure. You can't look at somebody and know they have diabetes. Mm -hmm. And so just to say, well, you look nice and thin, so therefore you don't have any risk factors, that would not be a true statement. Mm -hmm. Dr. Marsh, when you uh, look at, uh, let's say, younger people coming in like that, is it more difficult to talk to younger people about risk factors because maybe they don't think in terms of risk factors? There's a variety of, of responses to that. As Dr. McSweeney said, if one has a map of the United States and looks at the states where there's a lot of obesity, one can overlay a map where there's a lot of coronary heart disease and stroke, and they line up so well. They clearly, clearly are, are linked. So a, a concern actually for me in the younger generation, and they're thinking about risk factors, is that in the younger generation, in communities where obesity is so common, there's actually acquired blindness to obesity. People develop confusion between what is common, which is obesity, and what is normal, which is a slim build. So obesity is not normal, but there's major geographic variants of this around the country in urban versus rural, (laughs) and there's a lot of connection to socioeconomic status about this blindness to obesity. In Beverly Hills, there's no confusion about obesity. (laughs) Everybody gets it. Other places, not everybody gets it. In the older generations, I think people are not blind to obesity, in the younger generations, hey, everybody looks like me. What's the deal? So that is a concern. Is some of that have to do with use, the user term, the political correctness of not worrying about obesity? I don't think so. Um, I think it's just people are, are 
just comfortable with everybody around them looking like them. And a lot of my patients say, gee, I was just meant to be big. Like a big build. Uh I've I've just got a big build that's meant to be that way. In that risk factor, I think there is in the younger generation more blindness than in older generations. Certainly among some young people, there's, there's certainly awareness about the, the importance for exercise and fitness. And again, this varies a lot from state to state. In Colorado, everybody's fit. In Oregon, everybody's fit. In other states, not everybody is fit. And so again, there's social norms that, that affect that. In some communities, it's easy to be active and to be fit. There's parts of Little Rock, there's wonderful bike trails and walking trails, and there's a gym popping up on every corner. And so it's easy to be fit. In other communities, in other parts of Little Rock or other cities, there are some tough neighborhoods where it's not safe to go for a walk at night. There's not a gym on every corner. It's hard to be fit. On the positive side, a lot of employers are really understanding that having a a fit and healthy workforce is good business. And a lot of employers are trying to accommodate that in their workplace, even if it's within their buildings, having an inside walking path where everybody can go walk at lunchtime. So there are ways to adapt to it even under challenging circumstances. One of the other risk factors, I think it might be a risk factor, and I really haven't heard us talk about this, but maybe it's because it's only really becoming uh, aware uh, to a higher awareness level across the country. Dr. Mead, let me ask you about drugs. Mm. As a risk factor, is that, from what we're hearing on the increase of uses of drugs, is it becoming, or has it always been, a risk factor? Well, I mean, we're talking about research and molecular biology. What we understand now, what causes atherosclerosis is um, high cholesterol, and these cholesterol crystals get deposited in the arteries especially those that are prone to stress, such as in hypertension. And then when the artery gets narrowed, something happens and a clot forms. Clot is initiated by small cells called uh, platelets. And once the clot forms, there's no blood flow to the heart, you get a heart attack. And if it happens in the carotid artery, artery going to the brain, then you get a stroke. This is what we have learned in the last 20 years, intensive research in many universities around the country, around the world. So the medical therapies that we do now are actually focused on those events, such as use of aspirin, which prevents platelets from clumping. We use um, very extensively now cholesterol-lowering drugs. Then we use um, anti-diabetics in everybody who has high blood sugar, and we aggressively control blood pressure. And these three or four drugs, aspirin, beta blockers, which reduce the work of the heart, statins, which reduce cholesterol levels, and uh, you mentioned renin angiotensin system, this causes hypertension, blockers of that system, these four drugs, are thought to be responsible for 70% of the reduction in mortality in heart disease that we've seen over the last uh, four or five decades. But then we have also come up with procedures which either bypass these blockages, called coronary artery bypass surgery, which is the number one surgery in the United States at this time. Really? Hmm. Or we open those 
blockages with catheters is called uh, angioplasty or stent placement, which restores blood flow to the heart, which is screaming for blood. So I think all those modalities put together have are responsible for the reduction in mortality. But I want to emphasize that we still have major, major challenges, like those 50% of patients who are still having problems. And then we have large number of new cases coming up, which is still makes it the number one disease. And as Dr. McSweeney and Dr. Marsh emphasized, we're learning new things like physical inactivity, obesity. Mm -hmm. Talking about obesity, we see in Arkansas, 30% of the kindergartners or first graders <laughs> or second graders are overweight. Now, again, I read an article in Wall Street Journal, and I want to bring it to your atten attention of your listeners. Since 1978, average caloric consumption average has increased by 338 calories per day in average male and 378 calories in average female. And when you combine it with physical inactivity, no wonder we're all obese. I mean, mm -hmm. even so-called healthy people, when I look at my pictures from the uh, 1970s, we look very different. Yeah. <laughs> so you cannot just say, okay, well, we are genetically bad. And last point about obesity I want to make here. Dr. Marsh very elegantly pointed out you can overlap the map with heart disease and stroke, but you can also overlap with lack of education and poverty, which go together. Mm -hmm. So I think that might explain in large part why southern states, especially Arkansas, we have more obesity. And the lessons are very clear. We have to emphasize education at a very, very early stage. Well, Dr. McSwinney, what kind of education should we be hearing that we're not hearing? Well, some of it we do hear, and we just ignore it, or we think it doesn't pertain we're to us. We're blind to it? like you know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that we have to figure out how to give better generational messages, that perhaps if we do tweets and that kind of messaging for younger adults, we might do newspapers and things like that for older adults or TV segments. So I think we have to really look at personalizing that by generation. And I would go all the way down to kids even in grade school. As Dr. Mehta talked about, we do see obesity, high obesity rates in our children in Arkansas. And along with that, we see them developing type 2 diabetes that we usually see develop later in life in adults. Mm -hmm. And so these children have these risk factors for a much longer period of time. And there was a study done out of Alabama where they be, were looking at blood pressures in kindergarten and preschool children and already identifying some that were developing hypertension. And so if you have those risk factors for 20 years as you're growing up, you can begin to see that you're going to develop heart disease at a much younger age. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at the disability and the death that occurs, you can see the impact that that's going to have not only on our economy because they will not be contributing members of society, but the personal toll that it takes from our family members and, and our loved ones. Mm -hmm. And so I think we 
need to personalize these messages for all age groups and get it out every way that we can. Mm -hmm. Dr. Marsh, uh, uh, let me ask you about the uh, overuse of opiates that we, that we hear a lot about. And I don't know if opiates by itself is the deal, but are there is are these illegal drugs or are these overuse of opiates and opiates and that sort of thing are they affecting the um, risk factors for heart uh, disease too? So <clears throat> thanks for asking, Phil. It's strange for me to say this, but directly affecting the hearts, opiates are not so bad. But there are other recreational drugs that really are bad. <clears throat> so, Such uh, as? Um, meth, of, of which uh, Arkansas has an abundance. It, we have lots of patients coming in um, with chest pains and terribly high blood pressure, just feeling awful on death's doorstep after they've gotten involved in, in methamphetamines and meth. And <clears throat> meth is just beats up the heart. It just beats it up. Well, let me um, stop you and ask you to speak to that person, and maybe there's more than one who's listening this evening that has tried meth. What would you tell them about their heart? Well, it, it puts a, a lot of strain on it. It puts the blood pressure through the roof, and which can cause uh, imbalance in oxygen supply and demand to the heart and causing chest pain. It also, if somebody has a little bit of atherosclerosis, as Dr. Maida was talking about, it can, it can lead to the atherosclerosis all of a sudden getting a whole lot worse and actually directly causing a heart attack. So usually we don't see heart attacks in 25-year-old males or females unless they're using a drug such as meth and that, that uh, just can be a catastrophe, and it's, it's just so unnecessary. Uh, can you see when a person comes for because they've brought to the ER or whatever mm. that they've had a heart attack and they're a young person, can you tell that they're on meth just by that it's a meth-induced heart attack? Yeah, so we get one can get suspicious. Why does this 25-year-old have a blood pressure that's uh, through, the, through the roof and, and is having a heart attack? But there's actually there's, there's blood tests and urine tests that we can do that can— can show that they're using. Yeah. Well, when, when you have a person that uh, has a meth-induced heart yeah. uh, problem, how do you help them? So um, the, the treatment sometimes is just with medications that lower the blood pressure and open up the arteries, uh, make the, the arteries spasm with meth. And uh, we have medications we can give intravenously or even in the coronary that'll open them back up. And occasionally, uh, again, uh, an atherosquatic, a coronary plaque ruptures, and then we use the therapies that Dr. Maida described, often a stent, to open the artery up in that setting as well. Mm -hmm. and, and I think all of those are excellent treatments, and those are the acute treatments. We help them immediately, but these people oftentimes need long-term treatment to help them get off of whatever illicit drugs that they're using. And we really don't have enough facilities across the state and really across the country to help people permanently treat these addictions that they have. When a person with obesity comes in with a heart attack, how do you treat them? Well, the best way is really if we can have them go to cardiac rehabilitation. And this is a program that's about three months long. It can be longer than that, but people will be able to learn how to exercise. They can be monitored to make sure that it's safe for their heart. 
They will learn how to eat better. They will learn how to cook and even to shop and buy groceries better. And that is really has had a lot of research done on that. We know that that's an outstanding way to help people. Mm -hmm. But not everybody can go to cardiac rehab because they're located primarily in our urban areas. So if you live out in the country, you won't have access to that. But we do have programs within uh, our university hospital where they can learn different things from dietitians, how to go home and exercise, that type of, of thing. One of the things that we have seen that makes it harder, especially for women living out in rural areas, is safety. They're afraid to walk on the roads without any sidewalks. They're afraid to walk alone. So there are some safety issues. So we try to stress to women, try to get a church group or some kind of an organization that you might belong to and try to walk together in your little towns or wherever you might live. Mm -hmm. And that is a good way. We also know that that social support is reinforcement to help people Mm. walking. We have one last break to take. I want you to take your pulse right now while we go through these messages here. We'll be back in a few minutes uh, to talk about cardiovascular health, so stay with us. You're listening to Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow here on KUAR. I'm Phil Marriage with my guests, all from UAMS, Dr. Jay Maida, Dr. Jean McSweeney, and Dr. James D. Marsh. Dr. Maida, let me ask you about the heart itself. How does the heart age? We're talking about generations here, but a young heart compared to a middle-aged heart to an older heart, what's the heart doing over time? This is a very interesting issue, very complex issue, and very poorly understood issue. What we do know, let's see what we do know. When you start growing, and this was a study done in Louisiana, New Orleans area, Louisiana, what they found was that actually in early teens, you begin to see early markers of atherosclerosis even in your early teens. And these were children who died of accidents or whatever, and the pathology autopsy studies were done on them. As you got older, when you were 30 or 40, there are pretty significant blockages, like 25 to 40% luminal blockage. And uh, when you are 50 or 60, there can be complete blockage or subtotal blockage. Now, you don't always have to have heart attacks. Some of these heart attacks can be asymptomatic without symptoms. And women, what we are learning, that as they pass their premenopausal years, in the menopause, they begin to develop atherosclerosis very early. And by the time they're 60 or 70, they match up or catch up with men. Or maybe even at a faster speed. And that's the issue that was not very much talked about until now. Mm-hmm. Second thing is the heart muscle that we don't talk about very much. Heart muscle gets stiff with age. It fails to relax. It's a pump that contracts and relaxes. And with aging, there is a trouble in relaxation part of the heart physiology. And this is, again, we're recognizing now is a major, major problem which results in symptoms of heart failure. Without, it could be totally without blockages of the arteries. And this happens, we don't fully understand why heart becomes stiff, but we think that there is growth of um, some collagen or fibrosis, a cement-like material, and that gets deposited between the muscle cells and the heart doesn't relax. 
This is a very, very common problem that we see in our aging population. Dr. McSweeney, kind of expand a little bit, if you can, on the female part of that. Okay, women typically develop heart disease about 10 years later than men. And so early on, we thought heart disease was a man's disease. And so the treatments were developed, the symptom, uh, the picture of heart Heart disease was developed in men and really was well promoted. You think about men in a movie having a heart attack and they clutch their chest and they fall to the floor. And it isn't always like that in, in women. And so it took us a while until we had enough um, research done to begin <clears throat> to understand that women were indeed dying with heart attacks also, and that this is indeed the deadliest disease in women. It kills more women than all cancers combined. And so women are usually more afraid of breast cancer and think that's their biggest fear is getting breast cancer and dying from that when really they should be concerned about their heart. And it, we know also that in women, there are some other additional, they look like they're emerging risk factors. If women have irregular menstrual cycles or if they've had trouble with pregnancies called preeclampsia, uh, we're beginning to really look at that carefully to see if maybe that puts women more at risk later in life for developing heart disease. And there's some good research coming out on that. We also, I told you earlier that heart disease is, the death rates are declining in women, but there's one segment, about 34 to 44-year-old range in African-American women that's still increasing, and we don't really know the answer to that. We have a lot more research that needs to be done on women, but we do know that as we begin to develop more drugs and more treatment that are appropriate for women, that they're death rates are also coming down just as they are in men. But originally those were all developed in men because we didn't think it was a problem in women. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Dr. Marshall, let me kind of bring it back on the younger perspective. Do people in their younger years tend to think that they have their healthiest heart at that time? When we were in our 20s, all of us were immortal. I remember. <laughs> um, and as, we, as the years pass, bit by bit, we probably get a little bit more wisdom and, and understand. But I think the expectations about heart disease really have changed over the generations. Again, thinking back to the era of the Mad Men in the 1960s, the expectation was that just your average guy, and again, women weren't even on the map for heart disease, your average guy would have his heart attack in his 50s, He'd retire when he was 62, he'd get onto this new thing called Medicare when he was 65, and he'd be dead when he was 68. And the Medicare budget was in good shape because nobody got Medicare for very long, and that was the expectation. In the younger generation, I think a lot of people expect that they're going to be riding their road bikes when they're in their 80s, and they're going to be swimming in the Olympic swimming pool when they're 75 or 80. So I think the expectations have changed and for good reason. I think that the outlook really is better, and people really are understanding about taking care of themselves and, taking, and minimizing their cardiac risk factors. Smoking is way less than it was in the days of the Mad Men. Mm -hmm. That's gone down dramatically. And uh, although heart disease still is a, is a big deal, as Dr. McSweeney pointed out, we have made a lot of progress 
according to the American Heart Association, the death rate from a heart disease from 2003 to 2013 has fallen by 38%. It remains the number one killer in the United States, and stroke is close, close behind. But my goodness, it, it's not all doom and gloom. We really are making progress. And I think the expectation of the younger generation <clears throat> of being healthy and active in their 80s is well-founded. Mm -hmm. I think one thing we really need to stress, too, is that 80% of heart disease is preventable. So that if we can get people to really attend to their own risk factors and do the things that we've talked about here today and try to, to really minimize your own risk factors, and everybody could change just one thing. So if you could take one of your risk factors and decrease that, you could most likely prevent or at least delay having heart disease. And that's a most important factor. Would you say it's fair to say that everyone listening to the program today not only has a heart, but they probably have at least one risk factor? Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. If the women are outliving men, they better watch out for their heart, right? That's very true. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely correct, yes. Um, Dr. Maida, let me ask you a question that goes beyond our borders. Uh, when, we, when we compare the United States heart conditions and heart health, um, cardiovascular health and issues, things, how do we compare with the world, and what's the rest of the world like? Are there places <clears throat> where it's better than here? Well, I travel around the world quite a bit. They have, um, Western Europe has essentially the same numbers that we have here, a little bit less especially the Mediterranean countries where they have more active lifestyle. And uh, people have talked about the Mediterranean diet maybe protective. I think it's a lifestyle rather than a diet alone. But Eastern Europe and Russia, they have very, very high incidence of um, uh, coronary artery disease and strokes. And we have not seen the same decline that we have seen in the U.S. and the Western world. The problem in the coming years is going to be Asia, China, India, Southeast Asia, where those countries are getting wealthy, wealthy at, at a faster rate than we in the United States did. And uh, they are uh, becoming more inactive. They are consuming uh, more calories with the opening of Kentucky Fried Chicken and McDonald's <laughs> and Burger King's every place. And uh, China alone is expected to have about 70 million people with the diabetes by 2020. India will have 80 million people with diabetes by 2023. These numbers are horrendous. And actually, there are books uh, written on that, the epidemic of coronary artery disease in uh, Asia. We don't have many numbers from South America, but uh, there also we're seeing obesity trends. And uh, we, again, as I said, we don't have the precise numbers to talk about. But um, this is, uh, World Health Organization has listed heart disease as number one disease killer which is evolving around the world, mostly in Asia, to some extent in South America, and to a much lesser extent in Africa. Hmm. You might know more about this also, but I think China has a very high smoking rate, uh, as, does, as does Japan and perhaps even Taiwan. And so I think that might contribute to some of this. Yes, 
Yes. As we used to. But, uh, Dr. Marsh, is there a place in the world that you can think of that actually has some pretty good heart um, uh, statistics? That's uh, a fair question. The developing countries in which obesity and smoking rates are low do better, much better with, with coronary heart disease, where there's less fat in the diet, more of a vegetable-based diet. Earlier developing countries have a lower, lower incidence of heart disease. The problem comes for areas, again, like India, where they're exploding into being a developed country and all the, the problems and the health issues of that are exploding as well. I was going to say also air pollution, particulate matter. Mm-hmm. We know mm-hmm. that that contributes to developing heart disease. And we've all seen pictures over in China. So even if they don't smoke, the air that they have to breathe is really uh, something that we need to be concerned about. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen the pictures in the United States where people were wearing, wearing masks like they do in China. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it must be pretty, pretty bad. Actually, decrease in air pollution in the U.S. Mm -hmm. I remember in the 70s when I did my training in New York, New Jersey, it was all smoking. And uh, I think air pollution reduction has done, is a major contributor, I think, why we've seen a decrease. Good. But flipped flipped around, that's why areas like Mumbai in India, with terrible air pollution, uh, is going through the roof. Mm-hmm. I guess we could take this into an uh, entirely different part of the discussion if we talked about uh, the environment and the environment we live in. Uh, Dr. Marshall, let me ask you one other question uh, before we run out of time about technology. I know technology has changed a lot mm-hmm. over time. There, uh, what, what do you see now that you guys use, all three of you actually, and where, where do you see what, that we're headed with technology for heart? So th- this area is, is moving rapidly, and... Um, I think for the younger generation, <clears throat> cardiovascular health will have many more technology links. Think of Fitbits or other activity yeah. monitors, for instance. There is a relatively new company called Verily Life Science, which was formerly Google Life Science, who, is, who are putting immense investments into developing biosensors. Think of that as kind of the next generation beyond Fitbits and activity monitors. So I think in, in the future, uh, for healthy people or the, or the worried well, a, a routine checkup will be a Skype visit plus a transmission of your biomonitors. <laughs> and that, that, that I think that, that the routine office visit for a re, routine checkup will go the way of the house call in the you know, early 20th century. Wow. So I, I think that biosensors uh, for heart disease and for other diseases will become much more common We'll be transmitting in the data from our, from our homes and, and monitoring our activities. Um, uh, we may be able to tell, for instance, sometimes some kinds of heart, heart conditions, uh, salt is a real problem. They're working on biosensors that will, will tell us how much salt a person has in their whole body. And so I, I think the, the technology advancements here are gonna be immense. I think the other part of it is, is gonna be really personalized medicine so that we're gonna be able to make quite routinely specific genetic diagnoses. Just check a gene panel and see if you're likely to develop or have this kind of uh, heart disease or that kind, or, or in fact, your risks are low. And it's, it's sort of like a, a woman, you know, heaven forbid, gets breast cancer and goes to an oncologist now. They will get a gene profile on that on the first day. 
And I expect that if somebody has heart disease and goes see their cardiologist in five or 10 years, we'll have a gene profile on that in the first day. So we can have very specific therapy. We'll know what will work and what won't work. And I think importantly, these technological advances are really going to open up equal care, whether you're in a rural area or an urban area. And I think that's going to be very important. I, I really like the idea that they won't have to come into the office mm -hmm. anymore, and that will save people a lot. And people will be much more likely to keep those appointments, so to speak, mm -hmm. and, and not miss them mm -hmm. and don't need to worry about weather or whatever. So I think it really is the wave of the future. Dr. Mato? I think I, I mean, we've talked about these new advances, telehealth that Dr. McSweeney talked about, personalized medicine that uh, Dr. Marsh talked about. But there's another kind of heart disease that we didn't touch on at all, like the valve diseases. Valve diseases are occurring more and more frequently as people get older. And uh, patients require major surgery. And there has been a revolution, to speak, so as to speak, that you can open a narrowed valve or close a dilated valve percutaneously within uh, 10 minutes or 15 minutes at most. Really? Without any kind of surgery, without opening your chest. And these patients are living as long or better than patients used to live with major, major heart surgery. Wow. And these are being done right here in uh, Arkansas. And uh, I think we're going to see major advances. And then we maybe some other day we'll talk about cardiac irregularities, which kill a large number of patients with heart failure. And uh, many of your listeners know about pacemakers and defibrillators. They live when they used to die with very minor surgery placement or even now percutaneous defibrillators. So we're uh, looking forward to exciting times. That's the good news in our topic today, I guess, isn't it? After all the other that we've been talking about here. I would say one other population we haven't touched on is congenital heart problems that babies are born oh, with. Yeah. And that we have really advanced our techniques for treating those and have a whole new population of people living longer into adulthood now that have had a congenital heart defect. And so I've got one of my doctoral students is actually going to be researching that. But I think that's another whole population that right. we haven't touched on. I hope you take time to consider your heart health after listening to my guest today. I do want to thank all three for coming in. Dr. Jay Maida, he's the first Evans Chair in Cardiology and Professor of Medicine and Physiology and Biophysics. He led the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine at UMS until uh, 2007. Dr. Maida, thanks for being with us here today. Okay. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Pleasure to be here. Dr. Gene McSweeney, Professor and Associate Dean of Research at UMS. Dr. McSweeney is a research pioneer in the field of women's cardiovascular disease. Much more I could say. Dr. McSweeney, thanks for being here today. It's my pleasure. And then also Dr. Uh, uh, James Marsh, uh, the Nolan Professor and Chair of the Department of Internal Medicine at, here at UMS. And Dr. Marsh has been an active investigator in molecular cardiology for more than 30 years and has helped lead numerous NIH-sponsored clinical trials in stroke prevention. Thanks so much, Doctor. My pleasure to be here. 
Also, I do want to take time to thank Katrina Dupins. Uh, over the years, we've done several different programs featuring U UAMS uh, topics uh, uh, like this, and if it weren't for Katrina Dupins finding these great guests for me, uh, I wouldn't be able to uh, give you guys all this kind of uh, topic uh, information. So, Katrina, she's sitting over on the side. Thanks for being here today, too. Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow is produced for KUAR in partnership with the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. Mm -hmm. You can find the podcast of this and all of our past programs at KUAR.org. And you can send your comments to ytt at kuar.org. Join us the first Friday in March at 7 when our topic will be grammar. Thanks for mm. listening, and we'll see you next month.